All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to the Internet History Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So, as sometimes happens on this show, for this episode, we're going to skip ahead a bit in our narrative and talk about some people and technologies that we haven't mentioned previously in our overall timeline, but that we'll certainly get to in a short period of time. But because we're going a bit forward in our timeline here, I did want to lay out some of the background so you know what we're discussing and who we're talking to in this interview. iVillage, which you're probably still familiar with as a brand, was actually one of the very first early web community sites. So early, in fact, that in a way, it grew out of a consulting gig with AOL all the way back in 1995. Robert Levitan, the man we'll be speaking to today, was one of those consultants, despite having little previous experience with the online world, as he'll tell us. Levitan, along with co-founders Candace Carpenter and Nancy Evans, both of whom I hope we'll be hearing from shortly, went on to launch iVillage and turn it into one of the very first sites to engage with women as a segment of the online audience. In iVillage's success, we can see, arguably, one of the early proto-social networking sites. But Robert also went on to launch Flues.com, the most prominent of the dot-com-era companies that attempted digital payments and digital currency. So start this episode by listening to learn how a consulting gig for AOL turned into iVillage and one of the biggest IPOs of the dot-com era. But stick around to hear how... Oddly enough, the Russian mafia and massive online fraud conspired to make Flues one of the highest-profile casualties of the dot-com era. And then stick around to the end to hear how all of Robert's experiences in business have seemingly led to and coalesced into his soon-to-launch new startup, LiveApp. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this exceptional conversation with Robert Levitin. Robert Levitan, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Great to be here. It's also great to uh, do another one of these in person. It's somewhat rare. There's a lot of people on the West Coast. but um, Actually, are you a New York native? I am a New York native, and 
I can't believe that it's been 20 years of doing tech startups in New York, and finally, VCs don't ask me if I'm moving to California. <laughs> Is that a, a recent change? Very recent. I'd say the last three to four years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've raised a lot of money over the years. People have asked, when are you moving to California? Um, I will say that while New York has become a great tech scene, I'm also able to admit that there are significant differences between the New York tech ecosystem and the California ecosystem. And, you know, each is known for its own thing. But trying to build consumer businesses in New York, like iVillage or Flues, uh, those were hard because California definitely is bigger on the consumer side, New York maybe a little more B2B. Well, we'll, we'll definitely get to all that because I, I also, yeah. you know, the whole concept of the, the beginning of Silicon Alley, you know, yeah. let's get to all that stuff. But um, one of the things in my research, you know, most of the people that I talk to start out as entrepreneurs very early on. And tell me about this, this yearbook enterprise that you and your brother, well, was it? No, it was actually year look. Okay. And um, so I happened to be, I was always fascinated by media, actually. My twin brother and I actually, you won't find this, published a newspaper and a yearbook in our public elementary school in New York City. Okay. Which is crazy. Right. At college, I ended up uh, playing with the student TV station and running the student TV station and playing with video, and I hosted a show called Late Night with Lev. And then I got this idea. People were starting to buy video cameras and VCRs, uh, which, by the way, was Sony Betamax and VHS. And we had this idea to produce a video yearbook. So at Duke in 1982, we produced the world's first video yearbook. And then I started a company called Yearlook Enterprises, and we worked with high schools and colleges around the country. Students would shoot video. Mm -hmm. I would train them to shoot video, then we'd edit it together and package it into a video that would be sold to students and parents. You would edit it for them? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was a crazy... Uh, Seems labor-intensive. It was labor-intensive, and then digital... It was, it was still a kind of linear process, mm -hmm. and then things were starting to go digital, but at that point, actually, people could do it all themselves. Uh, and actually leads into kind of how I got involved in the internet. Uh, after running that company for 10 years, mm -hmm. it was a long time. 84 to 94, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I was kind of living comfortably in Durham, North Carolina, running a nice video production company, but I realized I wanted to do something more challenging. And I also realized an important business lesson. You have to choose your customers care carefully. And sometimes schools... And school administrators aren't the best customers. You know, they mm -hmm. want the best price, but they want the best product, but they don't want to pay, etc. So, the bottom line is, uh, I came back to New York, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And here's the kind of crazy truth behind how I got it online, and how we started iVillage. If you want me to jump sure, in, sure, yeah, here. please. So, January twenty fifth, nineteen ninety five. I believe it was a Wednesday. And I uh, was speaking to Candace Carpenter. Candace Carpenter had gone to business school with my older brother. And I was telling her I'm back in New York trying to figure out what to do. And she literally said to me, what are you doing Friday? Well, I had no plans. Mm -hmm. I was like, I could be available. She said, would you fly down to Vienna, Virginia and sit in on a meeting with me at a company called America Online? Mm -hmm. And I looked at her and I said, well, that sounds like fun, but I've never been online. And Candace said, that's okay, you come anyway. I was like, all right. 
So what did I do? Well, I called up two friends who I knew had a Prodigy account and mm-hmm. AOL account. I went over to their house. I checked out what online was about. And on Friday, I went to a meeting and they were designing the first shopping screens on AOL. Mm. And I had a few opinions. At the end of the meeting, Candace said, okay, I want to hire you as a consultant. You and I are going to advise Ted Case and Steve Leonsis. I'm sorry. Steve Case and Ted Leonsis. No, no, no. I know that. <laughs> we're going to involve Ted and Steve. Yes. We're going to consult with Ted and Steve. And we're going to have an office right next to them. And we're going to tell them like what revenue models can be developed that are not based on time, charging people by the hour to use AOL. So Candace and I... Commerce, things like that. Commerce, advertising, other things. So it it ends up... And by the way, you know, Ted was really the driver of this. I mean, Ted Leonsis was a... He was recently there. They they acquired a company called Redgate that Ted ran. And Ted was really shaking it up. I mean, Ted was really trying to kind of breathe a lot of life into AOL. And it was happening. I Mm -hmm. mean, people were moving in. The doors were wide open and they were literally moving in desks like it was a college dorm room. This is in Vienna before they built the Dulles campus. So Candace and I spent... How, how was Candace... Um, she was already consulting for them? Yeah, so Candace had been running uh, a part of QVC called... Uh, right. Uh, Q2 a shopping child, Q2. Something, something like that. And for Barry Diller. Mm-hmm. So you'd been running that. And Ted had met her. And Ted said to Candace... You know, why don't you help me at AOL? Why don't you help me figure out? Why don't you run shopping at AOL, but you got to move down here? And I think Candace said, I'm not moving down there, but I'll help you figure some things out. So Candace and I would fly down there and spend a few days a week down there and a couple of days a week here. And one of the things that we did is I remember, and this was how we ended up founding iVillage, is we looked at where were people going at AOL? And I don't know if you saw on my blog post that why we started iVillage. There's a, uh, a blog post on that, but mm-hmm. it, on my blog. But anyway, it says we looked at kind of how many times per month people visited and how many minutes per visit did they stay at all the different content areas on AOL. And what we discovered is there was this direct correlation between the places that had the most visits per month and the most minutes per visit and those that had the least minutes per visit and the least visits per month, you know. So the ones at the top were all original programming connecting people to each other. It was The Motley Fool. It was gay and lesbian, uh, you know, forums. It was health information where people were talking to each other about things in their community. I was going to say another word for that is community. Those are, those are topics that lend themselves it to It was people. all community and Ted would say that AOL was about community, content, and commerce, was what Ted would say the early part of AOL was about when he was there, when he was building it. You know, I mean, Steve actually was there before Ted, but when Ted was building it in the uh, late 90s. So what was interesting is what we realized, Candace and I, is that we've got to go build online communities. And that was why we started iVillage, to build online communities. Now, they had a thing called a greenhouse, then, run by a guy named Danny Krifter. Within AOL. It, within right. AOL. And what they would do is they would give 100000 or $200,000 to some young entrepreneurs, and they'd create content to put on AOL. And Steve and Ted knew that was great for members, and Motley Fool was actually a mm-hmm. greenhouse project. Right. And Candace told Ted, we want to start a company. We want you to give us a million dollars, 
and we're not going to do it in Vienna. We're going to do it in New York City, and we're not going to only be on AOL. We're going to be on AOL and the web. And AOL was a walled garden then. Right. And sure enough, um, Ted, being Ted, said, you know what? Okay. Mm-mm. But I think you're too old, Candace. <laughs> now, Candace was probably in her, in her early 40s. She's what? About 10 years older than you, maybe? She's probably five to seven years. Okay. Early. I think I was in my mid 30s mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, yeah, I think I was like 35. Right. Candace was maybe 40 or early 40s. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Ted knew how to challenge Candace and get her motivated. He said, I think you're too old for this, mm. but prove me wrong. So we then set out, and we were not a woman's network. I mean, here's one of the great mistaken uh, kind of historical facts about mm-hmm. iVillage. People think it always was a woman's network. We started as a company that was building online communities and the first community we built was a parenting community Mm -hmm. called Parent Soup. Then we built a community called About Work which was about career. Then we ended up buying some of the health community stuff on AOL, the chat rooms and message boards called Better Health and we had a health community. So we were about parenting, career and health information. Now as we grew and my role was to sell advertising on top of that. As we grew, we realized that 80 plus percent of our audience was women. Mm-hmm. And when you aggregated up our reach of women, we were the number one destination for women on the web. And that's how we packaged it up. Well, let, let's stop and, and examine um, a couple pieces of that. So did you ever actually develop um, pieces for AOL or did you end up only doing the web stuff? We did both. Okay. We had... So Parent Soup launched with a Parent Soup destination inside of AOL mm-hmm. and a website. Were you kind of uh, cheating a little bit and giving more attention to the web side than the um, AOL side? Or? No, you know, early on, this is actually a great question, because early on, there was more traffic mm-hmm. inside of AOL sure. than on the website. 95, absolutely. Right. And the other thing, well, we launched in January of 1996. Mm-hmm. The, we, we started the company in the summer of 1995. But the other thing that was interesting about it is in those days when AOL was still charging by time, Mm -hmm. AOL paid the content providers like us money based on a share of the revenue they were collecting. Now they ended up switching the model and asking the content providers to pay them because we were selling advertising and they said, wait a second, we're shifting from paid per hour to a free model and AOL and AOL is going to start selling advertising so you guys pay us for carriage mm-hmm. and audience and you can sell advertising too but so anyway we made more money on AOL at the time but we kind of knew the future was open and web and not going to be in a closed environment and by the way when we started there was Apple had a uh, eWorld eWorld mm-hmm. exactly and Netscape and AOL and they were kind of CompuServe yeah, yeah CompuServe Prodigy had their uh-huh. thing right Mm-hmm. Well, let's um, also mention, so um, Candice is um, the, the CEO when this yeah. launches. Um, there's you, and then there's Nancy, Nancy Evans and Tina as well? So Tina was employee number eight. Okay. But she does call herself a co-founder. Okay, and that's, that's, and that's Tina Sharkey. Yes. Mm-hmm. But the three founders of the company were Candice, Nancy, and myself. And so, again... And Candice was the CEO. Mm-hmm. Nancy was responsible for all the editorial. And okay. Nancy had come from... Uh, publishing publishing background and 
and then myself, and I have been an entrepreneur, and then it's interesting how I landed in the advertising. Well, let, let's get to that, one, but one more thing. So again, to be clear, you're not choosing, you, you didn't do any market research, you're not choosing these sites based on anything other than, well, the parenting site worked out, what's, what, well, work, work works out, so. Yeah, I think Candace would say that we were building communities around the things people care the most about. Mm -hmm. That was our line. We're going to build communities around the things people care the most about. It was parenting, career, and health. That's what we thought it was. Now, before we get into it, there is one interesting story about okay. the, uh, the name iVillage. Because we had an I long before Apple had an I. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, Apple had E-World. Right. And a lot of people are using an E. Now... I'm going to admit this for historical accuracy, and we'll see if the people from iGolf ever <laughs> listen to your podcast, but here's the story. We were sitting around, we were thinking about parenting, and parent soup, and, and we were thinking about the name of the company, and we were thinking about in a village, and the village green where people get together and talk in the middle of town. And I also thought of the, Hillary Clinton had that book, It Takes a Village yeah. at the Time. Now, yeah, this... We didn't really, I don't remember talking about, although I think Candace and Nancy might have talked a little bit about It Takes a Village because they were parents and they got that. But we were talking about village and the word village and about people in a village, like helping each other. And at AOL, there was indeed a greenhouse site and an area on AOL called iGolf. Hmm. And I said, why don't we just iVillage? And that's how we came up with the name. And I remember when NBC bought iVillage years later, when, when iVillage was public, right. I remember telling that to executives at NBC who didn't even know it. But that's where the name came from. We just stuck, I actually copied it from the iGolf and said, why don't we call it iVillage? Well, and then there's a bunch of other things that become i. And, well, yeah. after that, now there's a lot of i's. Yeah, exactly. Um, so one more thing before we get to, to, to what your role is. Um, what is the what is the product as it launches? It, is it message boards at the launch, not later? Right. Um, are you, you are you paying for people to write content for the site? What well, is this is what a is great it? this is a great question. So we thought we were doing something so radical by creating these. You know, parent soup was our first thing, mm -hmm. and and I'm sorry, but I'm going to ramble and tell no, you please. how we came up with the name parent soup because. It was a really hot day in August of uh -huh. 1995, and we had an office at what is now Chelsea Market. Mm -hmm. But somebody I knew had bought the building. They were fixing it up. It was abandoned. Mm -hmm. There was no market there. The neighborhood was really rough. Right. We had a space there. I think we were paying $6 a square foot. You know, It's now 50 60 Who knows what? And it was really hot, and we were talking about parents and it's kind of like you're in this stew with all this good stuff and the bad stuff is so like stew it's too hot for stew i want cold like gazpacho like a cold soup and we came up with the idea of be parent soup and at the time there was a show called talk soup exactly that's so what we ended up having to write to them and say candace <laughs> knew them and so it's like do you mind if we use the name parent soup and they're right. like okay you could use it but that's the name parent well soup then let's let's use parent soup as an example because right. i'm um i have an 11 month old at home so i'm a right. i'm a new parent in 1996 if right. i stumble upon parent soup what do i find what so I what do? happened is we launched with a website and an AOL site that had a menu on the homepage. And the homepage 
had this menu that said different categories, you know, education, health, finance, sports, different things about parenting. Mm -hmm. Now, I had sold a bunch of advertising before we launched, and we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. What we realized is we thought we were doing something so different, but oh my God, we did the exact same thing as a magazine. Mm -hmm. We had like a table of contents, and we asked people to pick the content they wanted to read. And we thought that if you clicked on health and you would then read about health stuff related to children, and then you'd want to talk to other parents about it. So it was an article followed by mm -hmm. links to what we call message boards or chat rooms. Mm -hmm. And then each topic would have, here's a message board, and here's a chat room. Like every Wednesday at 8 p.m., we're going to talk about health and children, whatever. Well, what we quickly found out, and this was our aha moment in early online communities, is nobody wanted to read the articles and then connect with other parents. All they wanted to do was connect right. with other parents who were just like them. And we thought we were building something great for the web and unique to interactive, mm -hmm. but we learned the lesson the hard way. Now, well, how did we learn it? We put all the advertising around the articles mm -hmm. and we had no impressions. Mm -hmm. And I had pre-sold all the ads. <laughs> And I had to go to the advertisers, most of whom didn't even have a website. We built their website. We built. I had to go to them and say, I'm sorry, we thought we were going to deliver all these, but we didn't. We're re-architecting the site because all the traffic is around the chat rooms and message boards. Mm -hmm. So then, Parent Soup quickly became, the homepage quickly became, are you expecting parent? Mm -hmm. Are you the parent of a newborn? Toddler? Mm -hmm. This age, that age. So once you identified yourself then we immediately put in front of you all the other parents, all the other connections, all the other parents, and the articles that we had written or sourced became support material to the community versus the other way around. Were you that able, was a key instant, was, insight. Was a, a user able to um, claim a username or a, 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 an ID, a profile? In that um, sense? Yes, you could. Um, the users that really cared about their kind of ID mm -hmm. were what we called community leaders. Okay. So, you know, let's say there was a chat about a uh, health issue for newborns and some mom who dealt with a lot of health issues for her child would be, you know, healthy mom, you know, <laughs> and she'd be the head of that chat group or message board or whatever and maintain it. But it wasn't required mm -hmm. to have one, but some of them had names, yeah. Well, okay, then let, let's get to what your role is. Um, uh, I think it was Advertising Age or somebody at the time described you as the rainmaker for, yeah. for iVillage. And so reading some of the details of, of the deals that you were able to pull off early on were yeah. amazing, but you didn't necessarily have the, the background in this, right? I mean, I suppose you did right. selling in your previous no, no, company. No, 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 no. The reason... I was so successful at selling advertising online is that I, I didn't come from the advertising business. I didn't know any better. You didn't know what you couldn't do. <laughs> right. right. I didn't know any better. So I just went out and sold it. In fact, true story. So we were interviewing, Candace was interviewing for a head of sales. And she interviewed up and down Madison Avenue at the time, which was the ad. And we interviewed a fellow named Greg Stewart. And Greg Stewart went on to 
be the uh, head of the IAB, the Internet Advertising mm-hmm. Bureau, which was put together then. And um, he was at like an ad agency. He wouldn't. He didn't want the job. We interviewed a guy named Doug Weaver, who was running ad sales for Wired magazine mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. both their magazine and their website. And interestingly enough, Doug and I was in on these interviews. Doug ended up telling Candace, like, you know what, Candace, you know, I'm not going to take the job. You're not going to find anybody in advertising who really gets what you're doing. Robert mm-hmm. gets it. Just let him run with it. So lo and behold, Candace turned to me about mid-November 1995 Mm -hmm. and said, we're launching in January 1996 and I want you to go out and sell ads at $40 CPMs. Why? Because Yahoo was selling $20 CPM banner ads. I want you to sell $40 Mm -hmm. banner ads and I want you to pre-sell the whole site. (laughs) In two months. A month and a half. And you actually did. Yes, we did it. Now, how did you do that? So we pre-sold $500,000 of ads. Mm -hmm. And And to Fortune 500... Oh, yeah. Oh, no, the big brand names. I mean, I'll tell you how we did it. So first of all, we did bring in, as a consultant to help me learn the ad business, a fellow by the name of Dan Ambrose, Mm -hmm. A-N-B-R-O-S-E. And Dan actually now has a business training people in ad sales stuff but mm-hmm. Dan taught me a little bit about the ad sales business and what we had to do so we put together a presentation now I have to tell you it's so funny because you read now and you read about the you know share of advertising like the eyeballs online and are X but the advertising online is still less than X whatever so the market mm-hmm. is going to continue okay well we did a few of these things first before anybody so the first thing we did is we identified a bunch of companies that we thought would be great, and we went out and we told them, look, there's this thing called the internet, and the people who are on the internet, online, people on AOL and on the web, are higher educated, more affluent, and they're gonna spend more money on your brand. Now, how did we figure that out? There was no research at those times. What we did is we took people who bought computers with modems were on average higher income and da, 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 da. and so we showed advertisers we're going to have this audience then we showed them a demo of our site and frankly they'd never seen anything like it you know it's and then I said to them look we've got five slots that's it if you get in early we'll give you the right to renew category exclusivity and you know what we're going to be your partner in this new thing called interactive media the web online so partner with us learn with us grow with us and I just didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. So we didn't even have a pipeline of like 20 companies. I mean, I think I spoke to eight and got five. Mm-hmm. And the first five sponsors, I mean, Polaroid, mm-hmm. Toyota, uh, uh, Starbucks, let's see if I remember them all, mm-hmm. Nissan, and MGM Home Video. Now, there were a lot of others that came. We brought on, you know, Johnson & Johnson. We brought on companies that had never been online. We did early stuff with Procter & Gamble. But of the first five, this is going to amaze you. Mm-hmm. Polaroid, MGM Home Video, and Starbucks did not have websites. That, uh, they had no online presence. Toyota and Nissan had a website. They each had, now, Nissan did soccer content. We created the kind of like mommy soccer mm-hmm. league information stuff. 
with American Youth Soccer something and and Nissan minivan. You know, Toyota just did some general advertising. But MGM and Polaroid and Starbucks, we built content for them and stuff that you would now call content marketing. So I remember Polaroid did, every week we did an example of how to build self-esteem with your children by taking a Polaroid camera photo of them when they did something great. So your kid scores the first soccer goal in their career or whatever, or they score a goal or they go to the potty by themselves, take a Polaroid photo of them, not the, you know, and then uh, show it to them right away and you'll create confident kids. For MGM Home Video, we literally featured an MGM Home Video every Friday and mm -hmm. said, this video you should watch at home, Friday family video night, you should watch this video and if you give us your name, we're gonna raffle, you know, like a hundred of these videos, we're gonna ship them to you, a video cassette, uh, to your home. And for Starbucks, we create a whole thing about community. So yes, we created advertising and we just didn't know any better, so we just went out and sold them. Uh, as, as listeners of this podcast know, uh, the, the guys at Hotwired had the same story. No one had websites, so part of the, the ad sales deal right. was we'll create content with you. But also like you, they said a similar thing where uh, you guys call – you called it integrated partnerships, but what people call it now today would be native advertising. Right. And in a sense, that was the instinct of what to do early on. Yeah. And then somehow, I guess, everyone forgot about that and we, we got the lazy banner ad model or something That's later. Right. But, but what you're talking about is what we would call now... You know, it's banner. funny you say that because at iVillage, as banners got more prevalent and the prices of banners went down, we continued to say, no, 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 no. Work with us because we're more than banners. Mm -hmm. And when we uh, built out Better Health, we were selling $200 CPMs. Why? Because we were building like interactive health assessment tools. Take this quiz and we'll tell you how you score. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were doing, you know, big brands like Zocor and, you know, big pharmaceutical uh, drugs were working with us to identify people who were interested in, you know, different topics and, you know, conditions that were relevant to their... And it was, um, you know, Glaxo and Burroughs Welcome and, Johnson and Johnson, whatever, and we were getting a lot more revenue per impression because it was more than just a banner ad. It was some interactivity, but you know, then it went all banner ads because it was efficient, and now mm -hmm. it's back. The advertisers are trying to figure out how to. Right. Yeah. Well, and also thinking back now with what you know. Um, was there a little bit of you were the the right people at the right time? Not only because brands are suddenly in '96 willing to experiment with the web, but also from my discussions with AOL people, I feel like people were getting a little wary of AOL. AOL was getting super powerful at this point, point. Yeah, and so the web offered them a way. It's to... very interesting that we offered them AOL and the web. They right. love that. Right. Wait, I can buy from you and be in AOL and on the web, mm -hmm. definitely. But you know, we were the right people at the right time. But we also didn't realize, and now you can look back, we didn't yet have the tools we needed. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't have social media tools. Mm -hmm. We didn't have media tools, period. Did you have analytics of any kind? No, so it's funny. Let's talk about analytics. I mean, it cracks me up. So I will tell you, we had to count the ads. Right. And nobody had ever counted ads because right. no one was serving ads. Right. There were no ad servers. We hired a young guy named Steve Gold. I think he was 24 years old. And Steve and I figured out, well, the way we can count the ads is, you know, every page view, there's an ad on the page, and we just 
slide, every ad impression to every page and then count the page views and build the ad view, whatever. So we did this. So we had our own system for counting ads. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it, you know, of course, DoubleClick came along and right. all these systems came along. Steve Gold ended up becoming the longest running iVillage employee. Mm. I believe he stayed 18 or 19 years. Mm. So he was at iVillage the whole time, ended up running ad ops, ended up going to NBC Universal, running ad ops for NBC Universal, and just left about a year ago. Hmm. But isn't that amazing? Like yeah. he, he ended up, you know, seeing it all. But that's, yeah, we didn't have the systems to count ads. We didn't have the systems. We were building communities. We didn't have photographs. Mm -hmm. You couldn't send us a photograph or a video of you yourself. You know? Mm -hmm. Well, right. And there's no digital photography. There's no digital point. photography. Yeah. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Um, well, so it does evolve from these separate sites into it eventually goes under the right. iVillage. Yes. Is that for branding purposes? It's easier It's both to... for branding purposes. It goes under the name iVillage and for positioning. You know, we could sell more ads across a bigger audience. And lastly, position to go public. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, it just, we were a very large destination online when you added up everything we were doing and we were the largest destination for women. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was nice positioning. I actually uh, was running our health site, Better Health. Uh, you may remember Andy Grove at Intel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think he had um, colon cancer or something. And Intel became a big sponsor of online health mm -hmm. uh, stuff. They gave us money to develop some of our interactive health assessment uh, tools. And uh, they gave money to a little company called WebMD. Right. We were bigger than WebMD, and I said, you know, to Candace and Nancy, I said, I think we should take the health thing and blow it out mm -hmm. and become, like, the biggest health destination online. And uh, they said, well, we can't because we're going to go public and we need the traffic and the revenue mm -hmm. and everything associated with health as part of iVillage. And lo and behold, you know, WebMD ended up becoming a big company in this space because right. that's a big opportunity. But it worked out fine for iVillage. I mean, you know, running up to... Uh, you know, the IPO, everyone thought, you know, we were going to price this thing at $12, end up getting priced at 24 It went on $100 a share on the first day. It was a crazy thing. So, you know, uh, iVillage was maybe the first billion-dollar New York Internet mm. IPO. I don't know. I'm trying when to did, remember. Uh, when did DoubleClick go? 
Or no, uh, Geo, GeoCities. GeoCities was more California-based, but right. um, I'm trying to think. iVillage went in the spring of 1999. Uh-huh. Went public in 99. There, there, was, there was another in New York. I'm just trying to remember who. But iVillage was certainly one of the first. And it was worth a billion dollars after the IPO. Now, of course, now it was worth 20% of that right. eight months, nine months later. But uh, you know, it fluctuated greatly. Um, we, we just we hadn't mentioned um, any of the competitors. There was Women.com at so, some point, right. and then eventually Oxygen with right, Oprah right. gets involved. And so this was fascinating because you know Women.com was Hearst uh-huh. was involved with Women.com, and Hearst had, had a lot of conversations with iVillage, and we could just never figure out how to work with Hearst. They ended up being involved with Women.com. They ended up merging right mm-hmm. before the IPO. Women.com merged into iVillage, and then Jerry Laybourne, you know. Uh, Bob Pittman was at AOL now, kind of maybe took over Ted's position. Uh, and, you know, and I don't know the exact titles, but, you know, Steve Case was always running it, but Ted was a driver for a while, and then Bob Pittman mm-hmm. came the COO and the driver. And I guess Bob knew Jerry, and Bob wanted them to have a, a woman's thing mm-hmm. and not just iVillage be it. So apparently started Oxygen, and, you know, and, and Jerry was doing that, and... Uh, yeah, we never really felt a lot of competition from Oxygen or Women.com. We were clearly the biggest, but it was definitely of concern. I mean, you know, Hearst is a real player, and Jerry and AOL owning Oxygen. I mean, you know, and Oxygen was more focused on TV, probably mm-hmm. a little more TV than online, although they had online. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, they were there, uh, but never really taking your crown I guess uh, not really I mean we yeah. felt it uh-huh. and, and but you know market was still growing for everybody you know uh, more people coming online every day more women coming online and right. more well, advertisers coming online um, you, since you mentioned this and it's hugely um, interesting to me personally but also to listeners and um, the idea of Silicon Alley as a maybe a marketing creation, but I've spoken to the Razorfish guys about this and the DoubleClick guys about this. And um, when did you get a sense that there was a a scene, a tech scene, coalescing in New York? Well, it's funny, you know. I joke about in 1995 there were probably 200 of us in like internet tech in New York, and now there's 200,000. Right. You know, um, you know, we knew probably in 97, 98, that there was a real tech scene here, and certainly 99, things were going. I don't think we put it together and did enough as a community early mm-hmm. to enhance that image. And then 2001 happened. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody was just so busy dealing with their own fires. Right. Um, the Valley was much better at building, you know, they had obviously earlier successes and then building community around it and a support network. Mm-hmm. And they had the big thinking venture capitalists. And, you know, we didn't really have great VCs. There were some young, new VCs in New York, but there weren't many of them. So you um, would say that, that most of the people that, that raised uh, capital in this period were raising from West Coast? Well, there were some New York investors. I mean, you know... There was Flatiron. Right, right. Uh, there were some new ones like Ari and mm-hmm. DFJ Gotham mm-hmm. and 
you know, there were some others that was Roe Ventures. Um, but I remember at iVillage, I mean, we went out west. I remember, I think we were the first East Coast investment for Kleiner Perkins. Mm-hmm. At Flues.com, I went out west. We were the first East Coast investment for Redpoint. Um, you had to go out there mm-hmm. when you were get going big. You know, you were going past your early round. You, you know, you were doing a, a Series B at that or C, and you were trying to grow, and you had to go out to California or Boston. Boston was right. a big, a big town uh, for VC. But you know, I think we just didn't. I'm not sure we fully appreciated. Now, now I look back, and there's probably 15 or 20 people that I knew in the mid '90s who have all gone on to do interesting things, who are in the tech scene, and I'm still in touch with, and kind of in some ways, you know, reconnecting and doing things with. And, um, and I appreciate them because mm-hmm. it was a different time and, and it was a great time and I loved that time. And what I loved most about that time and those people, which I think we've lost a little bit of, is the sense of anything's possible and mm-hmm. let's try it. You know, we've gotten to the point where everybody's so smart, everybody knows better, and it's very easy to, you know, here's all the reasons that's not gonna work. Mm-hmm. What we had back then and what we did in the early days of iVillage is, yeah, we didn't really know what we were doing. It's true. And because of that, we just went and did crazy stuff. We went and did things that people said couldn't be done, like selling $500,000 of advertising, you know, before. I I remember when Kleiner made an investment in Sportsline. They sent the Sportsline guys to our office in New York. I remember when AOL hired Meyer Burlow, which was an ad sales guy. They sent him to our office in New York. They all want to know, how are you selling advertising like this? I was like, I don't know. This is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, then a lot of our stuff ended up in their presentations, which is cool. You know, just right. the way we were positioning things. But anyway, I love those days. And I, and I like the people from those days because there was something else that went on. If you were doing tech in New York from 95 to 99, mm-hmm. you were doing it because there was something about it you just loved. It wasn't about the money. You just loved doing this. Then it became a lot of people like, you know, wanting to be in the scene because it, it had become hot. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, but I always, when I interviewed people and I'd say, so why do you want to work here? And someone would say, well, you know, it's the thing to do. I'm like, okay, gone, you're out. But, you know, those early days were people who really wanted to invent things. And there were, you know, people left, right, and center who were literally, you know, inventing ad tech, inventing, you know, online content, online communities. Uh, inventing online customer service and I could name you some of these companies some of them are still around right right well it, just just for the interest of time it, it was also a compressed time period if you think about it because yeah. you guys launched in January 96 the IPOs in 99 you leave right around the time of the IPO right right, right before so uh, technically I left right before I was mm-hmm. still involved through the IPO but I left right before because um, I saw e-commerce coming and I wanted to be a part of it, and I, and I thought I saw something that was probably a little too far ahead of its time. But a friend came to me, and, and, and we had this idea that you, know, you should be able to have a stored value account, essentially an e-wallet, an electronic wallet online, and you should be able to use it at different stores, and you should be able to replenish it. And in a world of digital information and e-commerce, you know, you should have this digital wallet. And so we came up with this, a company ended up becoming flues.com, F-L-O-O-Z.com. And of course, Whoopi Goldberg was a spokesperson. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, it's your birthday, I don't know what you want, I send you $100, you have an account, you go shopping online, and we would clear transactions directly with the merchants. We were the first form of payment at checkout other than a credit card. Mm -hmm. And we were not using the credit card networks. We built our own electronic wallet and cleared transactions. And by the way, this drove Visa and MasterCard crazy. I'm super interested in this because not only I feel like this is a problem that for 20 years people have been taking a crack at it. Like things like cyber cash at the beginning. Like everyone's yeah. trying to make money digital, right? Yeah. And now with obviously Bitcoin, the Bitcoin yeah. stuff. So your model was completely around the credit card system? So our, yes. I mm -hmm. mean, our model was... You would come to flus.com. Now, you'd use a credit card mm -hmm. to buy flus. Right. Now, I would send you a gift with a greeting card, a happy mm -hmm. birthday card, a whatever card, and then you'd have an online account with us. Mm -hmm. And you'd have $100. If you want to spend it all at one store, spend it. You want to spend part of it at this store, part of it at that store, great. Now, the key to our thing was we ended up signing up about 50 stores. But we tried to just do early, like, one store in a category. So Barnes mm -hmm. & Noble was the book supplier. Tower Records was the music supplier. Uh, J. Crew. You know, yeah, J. Crew. I think we had Toys R Us. Or, and we, anyway, the bottom line is we directed a lot of people to these stores. And instead of getting 3 or 4% credit card fee, mm. we were getting 10 to 15% of a transaction. Okay, so what is. We were like a new customer acquisition platform. So the merchant um, is paying, your cut is what? So here's what, here's yeah. what would happen is. You'd come to our site because you were just given $100 of flus. We would show you, here are the merchants you could spend it at. You'd link over to Barnes & Noble, and you'd go buy something. And at, this, at the end, by the way, at the bottom of the screen, there'd be your little account that showed you how much money you have. At the end, it, it would say, how do you want to pay? And Barnes & Noble had, would, had us as a form of payment. Do you want to pay Visa, MasterCard, American Express, or flus? Mm -hmm. And you click flus. And then just click how much you want to take out of your account. Right. And when you click buy, instead of going to the credit card right. companies, they would go to us, clear the transaction, and then at the end of the week, we would forward the money to the merchants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was radical at the time. Sure. Nobody had ever done that. We went from zero to 30 million in sales in 18 months. Right. It did uh, 3 million in 99 and 25 in, in the year 2000, I read. Right. We were at a run rate. In uh, right in '01 when we were closing it, we were past the 30 million run rate. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we did 25. Yeah, it was a, it was you know humongous. Um, but we ran into a few problems, which, right? You know, um, and it started with, and it, it's fascinating. I mean, by the way, you mentioned Bitcoin. I have to give Mark Andreessen credit. Mm -hmm. Mark Andreessen came to our office in 2000 at Flues mm -hmm. and talked to me about digital currency. Mm -hmm. So when, you know, he talks about Bitcoin, it's not a Johnny-come-lately thing. Right. He was interested in digital currency in the year 2000. Yeah. So anyway, so quickly, what happened to us? Um, I actually was on vacation for my 40th birthday skiing in Whistler with my two brothers, and I got a phone call from our CFO that about half our business was corporate, where companies like Cisco would give their employees flus instead of giving them a color TV or mm. a trip to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And half our business was consumer. And Cisco called us and basically said, uh, we had a bad quarter. We're cutting back. This is April 2001. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were supposed to buy $8 million of flus and we owed you like $4 million in the next eight weeks. And we're only going to take... 
three million what we already paid you. Mm -hmm. We're not paying you the rest, whatever. And we were like, all of a sudden, our biggest corporate customer, which represented, you know, you know, fifteen, twenty percent of our, maybe twenty percent of our revenue, twenty-five percent of our revenue for the year, um, wasn't going to pay us. And uh, so anyway, I had to come back from vacation. We fired half our staff. Mm. I mean, it was it was like three million some dollars in like the next eight weeks that we weren't going to have. It was like, oh my god, you know, we can't. And then, uh, but we survived it, and we kept going along. And then we got a call from the FBI, mm -hmm. and the FBI said, "Listen, we're following this Russian mafia gang. They're stealing the U.S. mail, credit card data, uh, uh, bills. Mm -hmm. They're taking the credit card bills." which at that time had your name, your address, your phone number, the full credit card number. Right. And they're shipping them to these computers in Russia and they're laundering them through flus.com. They're never it occurred to you that that would be <laughs> Long story short, our fraud rate went from less than one half of 1% uh -huh. to 19%. Uh -huh. And Chase Merchant Services, which was processing our credit cards, started charging back the money. But then they said, you know what? We're going to freeze your account for six months. Every transaction, we're going to hold the money for six months. Mm -hmm. And now remember, Chase was then you know, working with Visa and MasterCard, and Visa and MasterCard were big associations of banks. They hated the idea that Flues.com was there in payment. Anyway, they squeezed us, and um, you know, we kind of survived Cisco. We survived the Russians, but we couldn't survive the bank credit cards holding all of our money because without any cash flow we couldn't pay our merchants so, so we ended up closing lose bankrupt uh, chapter 7 bankruptcy and the bankruptcy wasn't directly caused by the the, the Russian mafia fraud stuff it was no. more of a chain of events it was caused by the fact that our cash flow was frozen right chase merchant services and I had read most of the articles I found were at the time where they were describing that this could potentially be the largest bankruptcy in history in terms of the amount of creditors because all these right. people... So it turns out we had uh, something like 300,000 accounts uh -huh. that still had some balance right. in their account. And I think on average, the balance may have been 20, 25 bucks. Mm -hmm. So we had 300,000 people who were literally owed money because they had money in a Flues account. Mm -hmm. Now, there were also some merchants who might have been owed money, but I mean, the, we made the payments every week to merchants, so maybe they were a week or so behind. But it was the largest bankruptcy ever in terms of creditors because there was th over 300,000 creditors. Mm -hmm. Now, we did not have everybody's uh, address. Right. So it turns out this is the first time ever that email was allowed as a legal means of communication in a bankruptcy to mm -hmm. creditors. First time. Mm -hmm. So now... The very strange part, of course, is that the last day that I did any work at Flues.com was September 10th mm. of 2001. First day you were without a job, I thought, 20 years or something. Right. Yeah. So I wake up, first day without a job. Uh, actually, I remember September 10th because we went, went to go meet with the bankruptcy trustee. It was pouring rain in the afternoon. I mean, just pouring rain. Mm. And went meet with the bankruptcy trustee. I was soaking wet. Me and my CFO went. And then woke up September 11th. It was a beautiful, clear day in New York because the rain had washed everything out. And it felt very quiet. I walked over to the gym. I didn't know what to do with myself. I walked over mm. to the gym, and there it was on the TVs. And I watched the second tower get right. hit. And so 
obviously, you know, we were front page, New York Times, business section, Flues bankruptcy. Um, they didn't get everything in the story right, but, you know, they got the story and it was ugly and, uh, and, and uh, you know, I felt terrible. But then September 11th happened and I mean, you know, easy to get perspective mm-hmm. on what, what we're dealing with. And it turns out, just to end the story, that we had had a bankruptcy hearing scheduled where creditors come forward and you kind of try to, you know, with the trustee and you do this in a courtroom downtown and that was scheduled for October and it didn't happen, you know, because all the buildings were closed. I think maybe by the end of November, the court was open and we had a hearing and uh, nobody showed up, not one creditor. Now, of course, a lot of the 300,000 people who have individual accounts might not show up, but some merchants that we owed money to should show up. Nobody showed up. Mm-hmm. I think the world, it was just so... And the bankruptcy trustee was like, wow, that's interesting. You know, like, yeah. I don't recall ever having a <laughs> bankruptcy case where no creditors make an appearance. Right. Well, before we move on from flus, I just, I mean, uh, obviously things like Bitcoin is way beyond right. in the chronology of what I'm doing. But I, I, I can't miss the opportunity to ask somebody who has tried right. to do a digital currency. A... Do you have any insight on why this is such a tough nut to crack? I mean, there's the obvious regu- regulatory you encountered. There's the fraud stuff. Right. But also, B, um, I, I also feel like it's hard to get the consumers right. to, to use it. But things like uh, Square having such a hard time with Square Cash catching on. Right. And stuff. Right. Um, but it seems like you guys maybe were going down that road. So. Well, I think our, our big thing was that we needed an application. Digital currency for digital currency's sake wasn't compelling, but the gift-giving application uh-huh. was something like, that's a problem I have. I don't know what to get you for a gift. And mm-hmm. I, instead of giving you $100, I give you $100 of flus, and it kind of felt a little more fun. But, you know, I think some digital currency will happen, but I do think there are a lot of headwinds there. You know, there's regulatory headwinds, there's habit headwinds. People like their, you know, habits. And, you know, it's just... These are hard things to you know create uh, out of scratch, but I think Bitcoin will succeed in other ways because it actually cuts down on the fraud and uh, but there's also entrenched players right I mean you know there's not just regulatory governments that like to regulate things and issue money then there's, banks. then there's banks and others who they're very entrenched, so it's a little harder to just disrupt it. Something will happen there um and of course, Bitcoin has other things like just the blockchain, the kind of core protocol behind Bitcoin right. is something that's valuable. But I'm a believer something good will happen with Bitcoin in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made a very small investment in something, in some Bitcoin and some things that track Bitcoin just because, well, what the heck, if it does happen, I'd kill myself if I didn't, you know, have any horse in, right. on the field for that one. But, uh, but I don't want to spend my time doing it. <laughs> you know, well, uh, let's let's touch on um, you yeah. know after after yeah. all that stuff. Um, uh, one one of the many things that you worked on, uh, I think most successfully was was Pando Networks, and and not the website right. Pando, but Pando Networks. Right. So tell us a little right. bit about that. Well, so first of all, there are a few things I worked on: Datomi mm-hmm. uh, and Pando Networks. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk briefly about Datomi. Okay, let's do that one then. Sure. Because there's history here. Uh, Esther Dyson introduced me to a couple of Israeli guys, including one named Yair Goldfinger. And they had this idea that you could serve ads across the internet that were personalized. Mm -hmm. And 
I kind of got it. Like, oh, I'm an American Airlines customer. I fly between New York and San Francisco. And as I travel around the web, they should give me a banner that says, hey, Robert, here's our special fare for New York to San Francisco or earn special right. miles. What is known as retargeting. Well, so what's interesting right. is I thought it was personalized advertising. That's what we thought we were mm-hmm. doing. Now, I launched this company here in the U.S., Dotomi, D-O-T-O-M-I, mm-hmm. which stands for Direct One-to-One Marketing Incorporated. Mm-hmm. Anyway, bottom line is I, I helped launch that here. I was kind of a co-founder of the company here. It did become retargeting. So, you know, that's what ended up happening is it became ad retargeting. Totomi ended up, after many years, getting sold to Value Click or whatever. I actually left there. Uh, it wasn't the right company for me for various reasons. And then uh, I did start a company called Pando Networks. And Pando Networks started with a very simple thesis at the end of 04, which is all media will be digital and people need new technologies to share it. Great thesis mm-hmm. at the end of 04. Mm-hmm. I knew the thesis was real because... I had just bought a digital camera. I went hiking with my twin brother, his 10-year-old son at the time. I took 200 photos, and I needed to send him the 200 photos, and I couldn't do it. So we created, we started at the end of 04. We created a desktop app that let you email or IM any size file or folder to anybody in the world. We put this thing out at the beginning of 06. By 07... We had 19 or 20 million people sharing files. I was one of them. <laughs> really? Yeah, sure. It was unbelievable. And it worked great, um, but we had a problem. We were losing two to $300,000 a month because it was too popular. Now, it was before Amazon Web Services. Mm-hmm. It was before cloud computing. We were buying servers and building out co-location facilities to handle... And we were paying for bandwidth and servers. And anyway, this is really an interesting conversation in the history of the internet and the strategy of online businesses because our board said we need to monetize. How are we going to monetize? We ended up turning to be a B2B platform. We kept the Pando consumer app but didn't pay any attention to it. And we ended up going after. TV downloads, we got a big contract with NBC, which nearly killed us because it was hard to implement with them. And then we ended up becoming a game delivery platform. Now we ended up becoming the game delivery platform for free-to-play games, where by 2013, we were delivering 300 million game downloads a year. So Riot Games with League of Legends, Turbine with... uh, Lord of the Rings. I mean, we were delivering, you know, Perfect World, Nexon. We were delivering 300 million game downloads a year. We had 150 million gamers that had our software on their PCs Mm -hmm. for games. So we ended up selling it to Microsoft Xbox because they wanted to put the technology in the Xbox. They did not announce the deal because they didn't want Sony to know what technology is in the Xbox. It's now up on their site. And the most fascinating part about it is just the last few weeks I've been reading rumors that they're going to use our peer-to-peer technology Mm -hmm. to deliver Windows updates. That's right. You read that now. Everyone has a free update. unbelievable, which we knew would work. Uh When they came out with Windows 7 or whatever it was in 2007, 2008, whenever, we actually created a downloader for them and said, oh, you could do this because you were having problems with your downloads. And they were like, no way, we'd never use peer-to-peer, we'd never use it from some other company. Right. But the Xbox people got it. 
Um, now, there's one little backstory here. So we sold Pando Networks. Funny enough, I then sold the name Pando to Pando Daily. Okay. So I, I sold them went. the name okay. and the URL of Pando.com. They yeah. were actually infringing on our trademark. Uh-huh. Not only did we own the trademark for sharing media, mm-hmm. we also owned the trademark for blogging. Mm. And they were totally stepping on it. Mm. Uh, but we ended up selling it to them because we were going out of business. I mean, we were, right. we were selling the business and closing the business. Um, so interestingly enough, I had lunch with one of my independent board members, well, my independent board member, a guy named Charlie Fetterman, who had helped me get into Pando Networks, kind of recruited me to do it. But he said to me, he said, you know, Robert, you did a great job. You got this thing sold and the investors are happy, but we let you down as a board. He said, do you think, and this is the New York, California thing, Mm -hmm. he said, do you think if we had big-time California VCs Mm -hmm. and you had 20 million users and you were spending too much time, too much money on bandwidth and servers, would those VCs have said to you, let's go B2B? Right. Or would they have said to you, wait a second, you've got 20 million users and it's growing like 40,000, 50,000 people a day? How much money do you need to get to 100 million? So it's a social network. We will fund it, and then what's the business model? Right. We didn't have that conversation. So that was a really interesting lesson learned about building a consumer-facing big idea. Well, Of course, Dropbox came along two years later. By 08, Dropbox started, and I give Dropbox credit. Mm -hmm. We were letting you share any size file Mm -hmm. or folder with anybody. Their UI, where it felt like it was part of the operating system, was brilliant. Mm -hmm. You know, we... We had uh, two other founders of the company with me. One is, was the CTO, one was the head of product. And the product guy loved our desktop app, and it was a beautiful app. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't the right UI. Mm-hmm. Dropbox figured out the right UI, which was, oh, it's just part of my operating system. Right, that metaphor of literally, this is a folder, an unlimited folder yes. sitting in my, yes. on my computer. Yeah, was the right, yeah. that was brilliant. Yeah. And of course, prices of bandwidth and storage went down. That's another important lesson and anybody you know, who looks at internet history and building businesses is figure out the trend and let the trend be your friend. Or stand in front of the tidal wave and let the tidal wave right. come in. Yeah. But you know, one of the lessons from all of these things, of course, is timing's important. You know, iVillage was, in some ways, perfect timing, build online communities, sell advertising, you're right at the beginning of it. In other ways, too early because we didn't have the tools to build community. Flues.com, certainly wrong timing, way too early. Pando Networks, just probably a couple of years too early. Mm-hmm. But the idea of unlimited file sharing, media sharing, right on. Right. Um, Datomi was probably on time. Um, so after, pa- after selling Microsoft, um, you know, I had a little opportunity to think about what I wanted to do and I needed to reconnect with the tech scene in New York. And a lot of VCs wanted me to fix companies they're in, which was not that interesting. I wanted to build something again. And a lot of VCs said, really? You want to build something again? You're like 50 years old and you want to... Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah. And I knew that it had to be in mobile. Why? Because looking back now at the 20-year history of the web browser and anybody reading, uh, listening to your podcast or reading your website... We're really looking back at the first 20 years of the web browser, right? And looking at 1995 to maybe not the first 20 years, 20 years of the consumer web experience. Looking at 95 to 2000, the first five years of it, it's easy now to see that the Yahoo's with search, the iVillage with community, the 
Excite and whatever, that a lot of these companies, you know, people came along and innovated on top, you know, Google innovated better in search for because tools weren't yet there. Mm -hmm. You know, community, of course, you know, I mean, whatever, Facebook, you know, whatever. But I think we're at the same place mm -hmm. with mobile. I think the early mobile stuff, we haven't yet had the tools to build the right mobile apps. You're starting to see some of the mobile apps that make sense. Certainly Uber is a mobile app that takes advantage of time and location and visual representation of information. Right. But I, I actually think there's so much innovation left in mobile. It's still early. And that's why with a young kid who worked with me at Pando Networks, we started this company, which is called Live. And tell, tell us about it. Yeah, without as getting, much as you can. Yeah, so. without getting into too much detail, we believe that you should be able, on your phone, to see everything happening around you in the live world, in the real world, real time. So that it's not just there's a restaurant, there's a bar, there's a movie theater, but there's a restaurant and this is the brunch menu. Mm -hmm. There's a bar and it's happy hour and mm -hmm. this is the special. There's a theater, this is what's about to play. And that you should be able to discover everything happening around you without actually even typing anything. And this is a very hard problem to solve because a lot of this data is not structured data. Mm -hmm. You can't just create a bot and go grab it. And a lot of people have tried, but we think our approach is going to be the one that solves it. And I think you know, this is, we're ready for a reimagination of what search means. You know, search, Google search algorithms work great on the mm -hmm. web. But, you know, the way you search on the web and the way you search with your phone is two different things. Mm -hmm. You're searching the theory of relativity at your desktop, mm -hmm. great. On the phone, all you want to know is what's around me right now. Local intent, immediacy, mm -hmm. these are the things that are important. So we're working on that problem. How are you going to discover things around you? And we're very excited. We're actually going to launch in two months or so here in New York, the product. Well, and uh, the website, it's um, liveapp.com? Liveapp.com. There's very little there right you now. You can sign up at least you to get a notification. You can sign up to get an early notification, <laughs> right. and, and we'll probably be notifying people in the next two months. Well, well look for that um, by, by the end of the summer, I guess, so definitely. Yeah. Um, one more thing. Do you still climb mountains? Huh. Not enough. I've got two little kids, but yeah, my twin brother and I used to be very avid climbers. He still climbs a lot of mountains. I, uh, man, I can't even tell you. What's the last your What's your favorite one that, the one that you would say that's that was my greatest peak that I. Well, I mean, we climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh -huh. That was kind of great, but probably the greatest one was Mount Rainier. I mean, mm. Mount Rainier is really a great challenge. It's probably the hardest thing I've ever done physically in my life. Mm. It's climb Rainier because. Uh, it's like I did it with my two brothers, but yeah, it's fun. And um, I think you did the Tetons too, right? Yeah, climbed the Tetons, Pacific Crest Trail. Yeah. Actually, my twin brother and I started when we were 16 years old. We hiked by ourselves with one other 16-year-old friend, the three of us, mm -hmm. from Massachusetts to Maine on the Appalachian Trail, mm -hmm. 300 miles by ourselves over 33 days. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, sometimes it's good to get away from all this technology and uh, get out in the middle of nowhere and and. Uh, so yeah, you've inspired me. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> I'm going to call my twin brother who's still a crazy climber and tell him we've got to get out there. All right. Well, uh, Robert Levitan, thanks for taking the time to not only remember all this, but to uh, put us up here in your, your offices and good luck, uh, good luck with live. Thank you. Appreciate it. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, 
please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.